Hello everyone and welcome again to Dissonant Dialogues. I am Emily and I'm here with Claire. Claire, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? Good, I'm tired, which kind of goes into our topic today. Yeah, very <laughs> um, relevant theme. <laughs> yeah, well, it's February, so I feel like we're getting into the month, not the month, but the season of mm -hmm. burnout, which is our topic. Uh, this was a highly requested topic. We actually did a post on Instagram with four potential topics that we're thinking about getting into this season, and burnout was by far number one. And I think it's Absolutely. because it's just something everybody experiences to their own degree um it's unavoidable and yes. we're gonna kind of talk about our own experiences with burnout just to kind of open the door to create a safe space and share uh some of our experiences with burnout and we'll get into talking about some of the questions that you guys have asked as well before we get started i just want to say thank you to everybody who listened to our debut episode i think we received some good responses we're really happy with how it turned out i'm sure things will get smoother as we go along but we've really appreciated everybody's feedback questions comments and participation so starting off with our own experiences with burnout um i have a specific experience but i guess i would just like to point out that there's always something that happens to i feel like not even just musicians but college students uh mm -hmm. the end of each semester burnout hits like just at the right time and the interesting thing about how semesters work at the school i currently go to is that our fall semester goes all the way through like what is it 12 13 weeks i think mm -hmm. before we get a break like we don't have a fall break it goes all the way through till thanksgiving and then we like crawl to that Thanksgiving table and then we eat and we're like, oh, okay, okay, good. And then as soon as we get back to school, we have two weeks and it's finals. like boom, finals, yeah. juries and all these performances. And it's like the break didn't even, it was not a long enough recovery period for burnout, no. which we'll get into the recovery period. It's so. almost like if Thanksgiving break was like two weeks earlier, then it would have yeah. been like refreshing. But because you you just get just a taste of it in order to start recovery that makes going back, I think more fatiguing. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. And then the spring semester, it's we go halfway through. So like six, seven weeks, then we get our break or spring break. So it doesn't line up with Easter. Sometimes it does, but doesn't have yeah. to. And then we go back for the other six weeks. So we're not like completely dead. Like it doesn't feel like we're fighting an uphill battle like the fall semester. But in general, spring semester does become very fatiguing and it is a burnout semester yeah. because you're also adding up the entire fall semester with your little winter break and then going into the next semester for the spring, which um, sometimes the spring can be more demanding because it's the end of a semester, but also the end of a school year. Yeah. So I feel like everybody, myself included, has had their experiences like just around those last couple of weeks, you start to really feel it and yeah. the classroom show it too. People are missing oh, classes sure. uh, left and right, and it makes the teachers mad, but it's like, I just sit there and listen to them, and I'm like, well, I mean, it's not the teacher's fault, but what do you expect from the ones higher up that created this format? Like, what was going to happen? It's, it's very true. And also, I think, you know, if, especially if you're an upperclassman, your spring semester is likely when you're having your recitals, um, you know, obviously, it, that's when we have operas when I was in school is, you know, the spring semester. So oftentimes you have the bigger concerts you've been working towards. And those mm -hmm. can be, I know, particularly after recitals, people just want to be done. Those performances can be just more emotionally draining. Um, and I think even though I think the spring semester goes faster in general, 
it's yeah it's hard to keep up that momentum the weather gets nice people don't want to be in classrooms all day for sure yeah i remember after my junior recital i mean that year was very difficult for me for many reasons but i do remember afterwards and i performed this big recital i'd worked for and it was like this big deal and there were a lot of factors kind of going into it that were making it difficult and then i came back to my apartment by myself and i sat down on my couch in my dress and i was like i think i'm gonna be sick like i couldn't help but like all that was brought up to that moment to perform for what half an hour for a junior recital and i felt just like I needed to be sick, like release. This sounds disgusting, mm -hmm. but that, that was the feeling that wow. I had. It's like, I just think, wow, like it's over. Like, can I breathe now? Like, what do I do going forward? And I think it's going to be interesting this year too, because my senior recital is longer. It's a little over an hour, mm -hmm. but after my recital is when I'm supposedly planning to start on looking into some part-time jobs over the summer, going to be done with living on campus, kind of getting into this new era of my life. So I know it's going to feel very strange, but I, yeah, it's a really interesting experience after you give a recital and Claire, I'd like to hear your experience too, where like, I just, yeah, I sat down on my couch and I'm like, I think I'm going to throw up. I didn't, yeah. but I was like, I think I'm going to. No, I know. I mean, I only had one recital since, um, you know, mm -hmm. COVID um, officially I did perform parts of my senior recital at my parents' house with just a, a local pianist that we knew and, and Zoomed, live streamed it for, for some friends and family, but that wasn't for a grade. Um, we just wrote papers for our grades. There were a couple of options, but that's mm -hmm. the one that I went with, um, which was very sad. I had a dress already. My junior recital, I feel like I had quite a high. Um, I, I had this like black swan looking dress that I really loved. Um, and then I gained a tiny bit of weight a couple weeks before. And so I was wearing it, just hanging out in my home in the evenings, trying to stretch out the bodice so that I could fully expand while breathing. Um, but I remember that like my best friend flew in, um, from Tennessee and came and stayed with me and I was trying to be on vocal rest. Um, but we ended up talking most of the night, um, so I was trying not to like talk too much and then I just ended up chattering all night but I have a pretty resilient voice in that way like it it was fine in the morning um I I had an incredible pianist uh Natalie she was absolutely just one of those people that just is full of light and so so helpful but it definitely was extremely draining um we kept apples backstage so that you can stay hydrated and get some extra like calories in between mm -hmm. songs because do you still do that with the junior recital do you have a recital partner no I don't no okay I don't maybe it's different for instrumentalists again but in your junior recital you have to have a recital partner um yeah. and and you switch on and off so like they do you know one of their sets and then you do the next one and it's just it gives you a little break in between um and yeah. uh and so that was you know it's always hard to coordinate around everybody's schedules and everything. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of people end their recital with a duet. Um, you know, we didn't do that, but yeah, I, I remember that afterwards I just felt, you know, I, I felt really like I was on a high immediately afterwards, um, because it went, I think objectively well, I got like a 95%, um, and um and I was very proud of myself, but I definitely crashed hard. It was it was like in April and it was really hard to stay motivated through the end of that year because we'd gotten done like with our major choir concerts and it just felt like 
how do I push through these last few weeks for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when to schedule your recital, that's something that we'll get into as well. Ooh, um, yeah. But yeah, uh, to wrap up mine. Yeah. I mean, I have the usual end of semester burnout um, perspective to bring to the table. And then also last year, um, I had more of what I would call traumatic burnout that then related to my music world. I know we kind of briefly discussed on how Claire and I met on our introductory episode, but that was during the time when I was going through ongoing threats and assault by a professor at the school. Um, so it was tied to music. I made it through my recital. And then after there was a period of time, I can't remember when, where I did go over an entire month without practicing. Now I had to teach my students, so no one really found anything suspicious of it. Cause yeah, then I'm going on and I'm teaching my students, do a little demonstration, blah, blah, blah. But I was not sitting down, playing a scale, playing my open strings, tuning my violin, uh, working on repertoire, any of that stuff. I went over a month. And then sometimes I would have a moment where I'd like, practice half an hour one day, and then I'd go a whole other week without practicing again. Um, and I know it was related to trauma I'd been through where my safe space music had been stripped away from me. And I know that, uh, I guess, trauma is a unfortunate common thing that can happen in the music world, which when we talk about conservatory culture, we'll get into it. So I'm sure that there are people that can relate to some degree of having a traumatic related burnout to music and not knowing if you want to or can interact with the music world anymore. So it's kind of my perspective I'm also bringing to the table, but Claire, do you yeah. have any, well, I know you have experience with burnout, so please share. I definitely <laughs> do. So we both have PTSD diagnosis, so twinsies, super fun. Um, and uh, obviously a lot of mine comes from religious trauma, but I, I, there's a quote by someone, I'm, I'm struggling to remember who, that said music school is its own unique form of trauma. Um, while obviously I cannot relate to the absolute horrors that you had to survive, I definitely relate to music no longer becoming safe. Um, you know, I had a five-year degree plan. I took five years to graduate because of health issues. Um, and I was somebody who looked forward my whole life to going to music school. I know you relate to that. Um, and like everything in my life was just directed to when I finally get to music school and I'm around like-minded people. I expected it to be hard. I did not have, you know, like I, I didn't have any reservations about working hard. Some of the emotional dynamics um, and just seeing my peers also burning out was really traumatic. Um, unfortunately, I saw a lot of people struggle with suicidal ideation and attempts. Um, a lot of my friends dropped out or transferred. Um, and it gets increasingly lonely, particularly, I think, reshuffling my class schedule in order to accommodate a five-year program meant that I suddenly went from being class of 2019 to class of 2020. But I wasn't class of 2020 because those aren't the people I started with. So I was sort of half in classes with those people. And of course, you're in a lot of classes that are just with everybody in your instrument. Um, you know, so you, you're kind of in classes with all the voice majors at once. Um, so it's not like you're that isolated to the people in your graduation year. Um, but it was definitely, it felt, I felt a little bit like a ghost. Like I was sort of between these two worlds, between these two classes. And I was also there longer than a lot of other people. So it really felt like a, like, 
pulling a heavy weight behind me to get get right to the end. I wonder if anyone survives music school without some amount of trauma. I can't speak for everyone, but I do wonder, is anyone's burnout just burnout? Is burnout ever not traumatic? Is it ever not traumatic to lose your ability to joyously do the thing that you're passionate about? I think maybe there is an innate trauma to lose touch with that. And maybe a lot of people power through it by just keeping busy. But when you get to that spot with burnout, yeah, when you get to that spot where you can't keep busy anymore, where you can't bring yourself to do that, that's really emotionally difficult to know that you have so much love for something. And when I look at most of my friends, you know, a lot of them did not choose to continue pursuing music past college because they just, you know, it was such an uphill battle, not just with the workload and the pressure, but the culture. Um, you know, the the elitism, at times racism, um, you know, gender dynamics and the just the politics of everything. It was, I think, equally taxing on my own personal burnout to deal with my own stuff, but then also to watch other people that I loved and cared for struggling with the same thing. So as much as that solidarity was comforting, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard to watch people that you love burning out. Um I am grateful that the one thing I'm very grateful about about the five-year program for me was that it helped me get to a point where I wasn't so competitive anymore. I wasn't as afraid to be vulnerable with other students. I will make that that differentiation for sure. Um, when when I would first struggle with those sorts of feelings, it was very much like you have to hide it, like feeling like anyone would take advantage of your weakness if you showed it. By the time I'd been there a little bit longer than a lot of other people, it was like, all right, we're all faking it. I'm just not going to, I don't have the energy to pretend that I am better than people and, you know, to pretend that I'm doing well. And I think it's kind of empowering to come into your own ability to admit when you are not feeling on top of the world with everything and to admit like, aren't we all faking it a little bit? Yeah, no, you made me think like there's so many different types of burnout. There's end of semester burnout, there's end of school year burnout, there's end of the degree burnout. Like think about how you were when you went in freshman year. And oh, oh my God, God I, I think about freshman year, I had 8 a.m. theory, 9.30 piano, 11 o'clock, another like music ed class. Then I went straight to rehearsal. Then I came back and I had to teach students in the evening. And like, I did it fine. Like it was great. I loved it. Like everything was incredible. Yeah. And then it's like, as you go forward in your degree, you start to get burnout. And I think that's somewhat why they design programs to where you are front like heavy loaded at the beginning mm-hmm. and then you have a little more time later also so if you want to like get a part-time job you have more of a chance to do that later on but yeah I also relate to the thing you were saying about how burnout can be traumatic when you lose the joy and the passion for something that could could have been your life's purpose like I know I mentioned that in the first episode where I was like music is my whole purpose it's my everything so like losing I still that feel it's that like way. yeah who yeah who are you the memories don't go away you still have all the memories yeah. of like the joy and the excitement and like it's still there it's just it's like it's behind a wall of glass it's not yeah. safe to reach to put yourself back in that state of passion even if you want to sometimes you can't do that and that I think is really traumatic for sure yeah anybody that 
walks out of music school with a degree in hand, like you deserve the highest award in the world. If you even step foot in a music building, you deserve like pat on the back <laughs> because it is so, um, I, yeah, I relate to what you said. Like, yeah, I knew, I knew this would be hard. I knew going to music school. Yes. I'm going to have to work really hard. They're going to be difficult times. Um, not that I was expecting the crazy stuff that happened, but I knew it would be hard in terms of how much I would have to practice and time management yeah. and learning stuff like that. Um, but still the, the passion was there. Why does burnout happen? Um, I think there's a, there's a couple reasons. Some of the stuff I was thinking is, I guess the kind of obvious one saying yes to too many things that like every single musician does. Um, and it's complicated because there is the financial factor. So there are times where, yeah, you're offered a gig and it's paid and you're going to take it even if you're already right. doing so many other things, but you have bills you need to pay, you have to take care of yourself financially. So you're going to do it. Um, if you're doing stuff that you're not excited for, that's how mm -hmm. burnout comes faster. So there are so yes. many different things you can do in music. And I think we talked about this in episode one too, about how I'm like, oh, I love performing. I love teaching. I love music theory. Like I just love the, the social media stuff, like the wide factor of it. And you have to make sure that the thing that you are doing in music is the thing that you love, which can be complicated. Um, there are many types of music gigs and jobs. It's easy to say, do what you love, but it takes time to be able to get the job or the gig that you do yeah. love to do. Sometimes you do have to say yes or do something that maybe isn't your favorite thing, but mm -hmm. you have to pay the bills. Also, something that is huge is just reminding yourself that it is okay to say no to certain gigs or to a job. There are other jobs, other opportunities that you can take most of the time. Um, it's always, my, my thing is you can always say no, 100%. You can always say no. The only thing that matters when you're saying no to something is that your tone matters. Uh, the ironic thing is that yesterday I went to a school to teach a short cello class. And when I was walking around with the orchestra teacher that I knew and then getting to know the band director, um, the band director showed me a text where she'd asked somebody to come in too and to help teach her group. And the response, and she wrote it all nice and everything, and the response just said, no thanks. <laughs> that, yeah. uh, and just like listening to the way that they talked about it being like graduates and official educators, and they're like, oh, well, never asking her again. Like, you can mm -hmm. say no, you can absolutely say no, just that you say it in a in a kind way. Um, and you See, I also I why. struggle with that a, a little bit because does that feel like a double standard? Does it feel like should we be? I I agree absolutely that like you have to be polite and you do have to sort of placate and appease people in order to keep your name in good standing in the music world because it is a small world. But like to me, I'm like, well, no thanks. Yeah, I wouldn't respond to a request like that. But that's not objectively rude. So do we need to perpetuate this culture of sort of tone policing? Because do our mentors, whether they're professors or people hiring us, do they also replicate that level of professionalism? They don't. No, no, they don't. <laughs> I can. There used to be all these jokes that my classmates and I would make where we would talk about when we would have to email our professors about like a scheduling conflict or, you know, missing a class, people would, um, you know, message about like auditions that conflicted with rehearsals and things like that, um, whatever it may be. And they would type out this really long letter, like email, you know, not super long, but you know, they'd be so professional and they'd be using, you know, formal language and they would proofread it six times because they would be so anxious. 
And I remember at one point, one of our professors replied, and it almost became a meme about how many typos she would make um, when she replied to emails from students. And like, you're on your phone, like, it's understandable. But it is funny to think about like how people would like sweat over, I need to seem so professional. And then she responded, she meant to say no, but she responded and question mark, no signature, no introduction, nothing. And that was just, that was typical. And the fact that that respect is not returned, why do you get so indignant if I am not polite, not only polite, but polite to you in exactly the way that appeases your preferences, which are oftentimes unspoken expectations, and that's not even returned. Mm -hmm. And you deserve to have to go that extra mile because you haven't earned your place yet. You haven't paid your dues. Yeah, that's a thing. I don't know Respect if I can get behind just, that. I, that's the thing where it's like, why can't people just be nice to each other? Like, why can't everybody just be respectful to each other? Then the problem would be solved, right. but, but it can't happen. Then <laughs> people just can't well, do like it. It's like they have a, a <laughs> fetish for being worshipped almost. Like like the, the obsession they have with being respected in a very specific way. And I'm being broad here. I'm painting with a broad brush. Obviously not everybody is like this, but it is a trend that I see. And not only is it a trend I see, it is something that your professors specifically teach you to expect in the yeah. music world. They are not shy about telling you that if you piss off the wrong person, you can be blacklisted for your entire career. Mm -hmm. And part of me is like, why are we spending so much time preparing students for that reality and not trying to change that reality? I understand that that's an uphill battle, but it does bother me. Yeah, I think the pandemic really was eye opening to people. Um, I know, especially educators and like how to be yeah. flexible teaching during the pandemic without burning yourself out. Uh, it taught a lot of people about boundaries from what I'd heard, because I just started teaching during the pandemic, like online teaching. Um, so that was just, I was entered into it, but I was hearing from so many educators and especially with the music ed degree, like, oh, we are learning about boundaries. We're learning so much stuff. Like we're learning how to take care of yourselves. Uh, there was even a teacher who had told me that they'd gotten an ulcer at the start of the pandemic, just because it was so much work and you were just thrown into the wolves. Like, all right, just figure it out. Do no, virtual teaching. And they're like, what? <laughs> it's absolutely true. And like, and people were bitter, you know, the classical music world does not like to change. They're, they're, in, they're like, an old man who's grumpy with the world. That's that's what classical music trauma. is like. So, right? It's just, I think, like, being forced to make changes. People were livid. People were really angry. You know, like, we're, we're timed perfectly to see, you know, my degree ending and yours beginning right at the peak of all of this. Um, it was It was fascinating to see some professors just didn't try. They really didn't. They, and, and I can't, I can't really blame them completely because it was very overwhelming and we had, I would like to say we had no time to prepare, but realistically we did know this was coming as a country yeah. and then just kind of ignored it. Yeah. Um, so potentially there was more that people could be doing, but like, you know, my teacher, he, he, with his own money, bought a bunch of programs and gave a bunch of recommendations, coordinated um, us with our pianist so that we could get recordings of our accompaniment so that we could practice at home, recommended apps that had some of that. If, you know, if that was an option, showed us how to like hook up all of our speakers and sync up with his, which is really, really difficult to do. And a lot of the other voice teachers I know just 
didn't even log in for lessons. They didn't want to figure out the technology, so they just stopped. And I do wonder, did anyone actually get in trouble for that? Because that, yeah, that probably seemed, not. <laughs> no, no. People get away with anything. Yeah. So basically, all the stuff that we talked about all kind of goes down to two things, which are trauma versus stress. So they both cause burnout. But I think it's important uh, before we go forward to really talk about the difference between what's trauma versus what is stress. And it's so ironic because I was just having this discussion yesterday and the coolest comparison came up. So try to think of stress as like having a cold. So you get the common cold, right? Uh, it's a very short term thing. Uh, not fun when you have it, but you come out the other end still alive and still yourself. While trauma is more like getting cancer, and I like to think of it more as like getting cancer that requires a stem cell transplant, because when you get a stem cell transplant, you quite literally become a different person. Uh, yeah. Very creepy, like read up on it when you get one like you like your blood type changes like you're yeah you're considered like a baby when you first get that done so it's like you're a brand new person, and that's also quite literally what trauma does to you is that you become an entirely different person with a different perspective yeah. um, and it completely changes you. Um, so basically um, there is such thing as like traumatic burnout where you can go through a trauma like I talked about and then I had this burnout come where I was like, I don't know if I can enjoy music anymore, interact with the music world, um, but stress over a long period of time and experiencing hopelessness also equals burnout. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just clarifying, like I know we kind of talked about what trauma is, but like stress in the workplace is not necessarily trauma, but it can still no. cause burnout. So both trauma and right. stress lead down that path to burnout. And I would say just different right. types of burnout that were kind of right. And stress induced burnout, I think, can be traumatic when when it is responded to in a way that is not helpful. I think sometimes you mm -hmm. can have burnout that is stress induced that could be much easier to recover from. But then if people shame you for it, that can turn into trauma. Um, I also I also like to think of if we're using the illness metaphor, um, an immune system. So if you have a damaged mental health immune system, so to speak, like we both do now because we both have PTSD diagnosis, if you have a pre-existing mental health condition or a traumatic history, which a lot of us do. Um, a lot of us get into music because we've had traumatic lives and we empathize. That's like been therapeutic for us. Um, and so if you have that, you can think of it as like having a damaged immune system. If you're if you have a damaged immune system, a cold isn't just a cold, you know, it's it's going to, to wreak more havoc on your body or you're more likely to get more colds, which in and of themselves might not be incredibly damaging. But over and over again, they interrupt your life. And, you know, and so that was something that I had to realize is that for me, with the damaged brain immune system that I have what might be interpreted as stress by another person can be elevated to my brain. And that is a permanent reality that I have to live with. And that I think a lot of people have to live with diagnosed and undiagnosed, honestly. Um, and, and so what you have to learn is that you're on your own timeline when it comes to burnout, mm -hmm. recovery, and the amount of stress that you can tolerate. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really, easy to compare yourself to other people, literally the entire degree is being compared to other people. 
Um, and so it can be so easy to look at other people and go, why is this so much easier for them? Which, first of all, you don't know. People have their own coping mechanisms. And some of them are really destructive and you would never know. Or but also hiding it too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, there there are people who have all kinds of, of outlets that aren't necessarily safe and that you just don't see because they hide it. Um, but also you're not somebody else. You know, I think I I didn't meet anyone in the music degree who wasn't suffering in some aspect of their life in order to survive the degree. Maybe it was financially because they didn't have the time to get another job. Maybe it was interpersonal relationships, having time for friends outside of school. You know, maybe it was, you know, it, it could be a, a number of things, mental health, drug problems, you know, just a lot of, a lot of people had their own demons that they were fighting. And it, it gets really hard because some people made, made themselves look so shiny and happy and perfect in the middle of that. But everyone has something that is difficult for them. And you are not anyone else. Your immune system, your health. Trauma is neurologically defined as anything that damages your nervous system or dysregulates your nervous system. Something that one person might not interpret as trauma may be interpreted as trauma in your own body based on your own history, uh, your own brain chemistry, what medications you're on, what is triggering what you grew up in. And so, you know, something that might seem like it shouldn't be a big deal if your nervous system is dysregulated and your brain chemicals are firing off to tell you that that's a trauma response, it doesn't really matter if it's not that big of a deal because it is to your body. So you need to treat it with that respect because believe me, if you do not respect your body's trauma responses, your body will try to kill you. It will do whatever it can to slow you down, including making you sicker and sicker until you are forced to stop. And that is where you end up with these cases of extreme not only burnout, but like physical illness on top of it that can paralyze you for years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is so good. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. So, um, yeah, kind of the wrap up. So burnout is, um, I read definition about it associated with feelings of hopelessness, uh, and that one's efforts make no difference. Uh, so I'm mm -hmm. sure a lot of us can relate to that, especially being in music school, but it makes sense by the end where it's like, I mean, it affects your performance ability in terms of attending class, how you do in class, uh, how you're performing, your end of the semester jury, uh, if you have a recital, any of those performances. Um, and that's kind of what goes into scheduling your recital. So mm -hmm. when I scheduled my recital last year, I wanted it to be as late into the semester possible because I was like, oh, I need time yeah. to practice. I just, I'm going to schedule thing. as late as I can. And I guess I was kind of lucky because something got messed up with when I, I was trying to schedule end of April and something got messed up and it was never scheduled. I was like, oh my God. And I like ran in and I think it was like April 6th is when I got it scheduled. And I'm like, I just lost a few weeks of practice now. Oh my God. And my teacher is like, you're fine. You're fine. And um, thank God, because like I said, that week after my recital then, not even the week after, it was like the week before I felt it. I felt the burnout and I felt burnout for a lot of different reasons because I was going through some crazy stuff then. But I, I was feeling it all. And I was like, man, thank God it wasn't the end of April. Cause I don't think I would still be alive if my recital yep. was scheduled then I don't think I'd be able to do it. Um, so I was no. very lucky that it got put then. And then sure enough, for my senior recital, I made sure I scheduled it end of March. So it's March 30th. I'm like, you know what? 
that's good. Then it gives me a little bit of time at the end of the semester to start preparing for when I'm no longer on campus and everything, but at least I won't be quite literally dead. Uh, and I'm going to be able to give a much better recital um, yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. And you definitely um, also have to time it with what other performances that you have that semester. Mm-hmm. You know, I schedule both my recitals for April. Obviously, the second one never happened. But I do think a lot about that is I was so burnt out by the time that I was coming up on my senior recital. I remember uh, my one of my best friends was getting married over that spring break. So literally, I got on a plane to Colorado as a bridesmaid with my dress and everything. I I put all my sheet music on my tablet so I didn't have to pack it all so I could keep practicing. There were a couple of songs I still really had not learned. And I just kept thinking, oh my God, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get back and be in crunch time and have two weeks left to polish everything up? Um, And then of course, I'm sitting in the hotel lobby watching over the next couple of days, watching the emails come through one by one hearing my sister's text and go, this is what our college is doing. You know, we're shutting down. Um, You know, this friend is a doctor. So literally she went from her wedding to starting her residency in March of 2020. So bless her. Um, Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that was really traumatic. And I remember as much as it was disappointing, it's so hard to admit this, but I wonder what I have would I have been able to do it? Would I have passed or just gotten a grade that I was proud of? Because I really felt like I was clawing my way to the finish line. And in some senses, I was really grateful that this big disaster happened that completely derailed what everything was going to look like. Because I do wonder, it wasn't that I wasn't doing the work. It wasn't that I was lazy. I couldn't work any harder. Do you think that you felt a bit of relief in some ways that you didn't have to worry about giving that? Yes, for sure. I mean, I definitely had to worry about like what I was going to do instead. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, my teacher had to sign off that I had learned everything. Um, Obviously there was some grace extended in that because how well can you, like if there were still things that I hadn't really gone over in lessons yet, and I never gotten to learn them with a, with an accompanist, then how harshly are you graded on that? So like certain standards kind of went a little bit more lenient, but yeah. And that's hard to admit. That is so hard to admit, like embarrassing to admit that like, I don't know that I could have done it. There were just, but yeah, I was, I was relieved as much as I was mourning the loss of something that was supposed to be this culmination, this celebration of everything I'd worked for. I also don't know that I was capable of actually giving a performance worthy of everything that I worked for at that point, because I was just afraid. I just had nothing left. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I totally see that. Yeah. So we've kind of talked about burnout within like a high workload environment. Uh, but the other part is when you're working in a non-supportive environment. Okay. Um, it's so complicated, um, but so important to that you find either a school, if you want to go to conservatory, uh, or a job that respects you and respects what you can handle and quite literally supports and loves you. Um, I think with my experience at school, and I'm living in this environment at school where I don't have support right now, I don't have anybody there for me or anybody 
um, talking to me up like, yeah, you can do it. You're going to give a great recital. You're going to finish this degree. Um, I don't have that right now. I don't have any friends at school. I'm kind of just on my own. And I think that's where burnout kind of hit me in week two of the semester, yeah. which is terrifying. And I'm like, whoa, I recognize these feelings. What's going on? Yeah, that's why having an environment that is supportive for you. And that, I mean, like, that's going to respect you. And we can accommodate for you in this way. Uh, we can make you more comfortable where you can still get your work done, still do everything that you need to do and not have to feel shame that you're accommodated for in some way. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it's a lot and it's hard because there are a lot of, I mean, I'm not sure about the job world, which I will discover soon, but I know for conservatories, there's a lot of toxic conservatories that have this mentality that I know Claire's talked about before. It's like, oh, here, we're gonna like get rid of the week by year two. And especially in like theory, when you start learning secondary dominance, it's like, you can't handle it, bye, go do something else. Mm -hmm. And like, they have that mentality where it's like, oh, you can't handle it, guess this isn't for you. But then there's people that are just barely making it to the end and crawling across the stage with their diploma, like in their other hand. And it's like, I did it. But then like, you What's you next? almost like lost every, like what will do you have now to go actually do the thing that you went to school to do? It, that was it's like, almost like, you know, <laughs> they say like, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Well, no, in terms of music, it's do what you love and forget why you love it. Um, Ooh, and that, yeah. that is, that is what it feels like. And it does, it makes me sad because those people, like they deserved people that I know who have burned out forever. Like they were good. They deserve to be heard. Um, and also I think I do wonder at times, is there such thing as a healthier music school? It was interesting when I would talk about grad school um, with professors that oftentimes I would bring up a school that I was interested in and they'd be like, oh, you don't wanna go there. The environment there is so toxic. And I would be like, isn't it toxic here though? <laughs> hot kettle, I think there's an expression about this, but you know, and then there would be this like indignation of like, well, if you think it's hard here, you have no idea. Um, I will say the advice that I would give to anyone who is young and considering going to any kind of conservatory or music program, it's probably not going to be perfect. Find a teacher who is as close to perfect as possible. If you cannot, because obviously you can't vet every aspect of a school before you go. If you cannot guarantee yourself anything, find a teacher who feel, because if your studio teacher is not a good fit, nothing works. I think that the yeah. only reason I survived everything that I did was because I had a studio teacher who no matter what, I knew that I could feel horrible. And I knew that I would walk out of my lesson feeling better about myself than I walked in. Even if it was going from like down here to here, it would still be, you know, sometimes it was marginally better, but it would still be better. I never, I, I never walked out of a lesson feeling more discouraged than when I walked in. And I can't, so... I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I can say that about a single other class or professor that I had. That's, that was the norm is I would, I would walk out of everything doubting myself. And I always knew that like, if I could just make it to my lesson, I would feel better. Even if we didn't get everything done, even if it was a day where we needed to like talk a little bit more or take things a little bit slower or because when you're a musician, your emotions are part of your art. If they're not managed, you will have consequences that come across in your performing ability. So your your teacher almost does become a bit of a therapist to you. 
Um, so that's why I always say I it's it's expensive to to first of all apply everywhere you can. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more because it is a numbers game and you can be so good and a room of qualified professionals can have 20 different opinions on you and the next day you can perform exactly the same and they could have 20 different opinions it is so subjective um have as many trial lessons as you can because if mm -hmm. you can't find any more support than that you that that's the one thing that i think is just a non-compromise that's something i really never put two and two together until you said it but you know i with a year ago at this time, when I was going through ongoing abuse and assault, I don't think I would have survived the semester if it wasn't for my private teacher. And it's not that she was like super caring and like sweet and like gentle in lessons. No, yeah. she, she worked me hard, but yeah, I also felt like she wanted what was best for me with my music. And so mm -hmm. that kind of gave me purpose while these horrific things were happening and I would go and have a lesson with her. And I do think that that is something that kept me going. And she had no idea this was going on. I mean, she's literally like in her upper eighties. So sometimes she doesn't remember like what she did yesterday. I mean, like she's an old woman, but like an incredible woman, like she knows yeah. what she's doing. And, um, but she, I, yeah, I just, I never thought about that. It is very important that your private teacher is an advocate for you and that is going to push you and that believes in you i think that is something that can get you through any other aspect music. that's true that is true and i also think like one of the most toxic belief systems that people who are in positions of power in this world hold on to is the idea that you cannot be a teacher who pushes and and pushes and motivates your student towards excellence and also be somebody who is caring mm -hmm. you know that is entirely possible you know, a, a teacher who is emotionally compassionate and, and an advocate for you does not mean that they are so soft that they never ask you to, like, they never demand anything of you. That is not mutually exclusive by any means, but you know what it is? It's harder work and people don't want to yeah. work harder. It takes, it takes more time. It takes more emotional energy. It takes more vulnerability on the part of a teacher. It can be heartbreaking to care about your students because you share in some of their griefs and pain. And again, we're working in a field that is innately emotional. Mm -hmm. But also, if you can't do that for your students, do you belong in teaching? Just a question. Yeah, that's something about like educator burnout, which I don't think we really got into. It's like people that are like, oh, teachers get summers off. They have it easy. Like, man, <laughs> you know, teachers like, and I don't even like, I'm not even teaching like full time like that yet. And I just, I already know it from everything that I've yeah. studied and what I've already done. I'm like, they need summers off. And are they really off though? No, um, you're planning. While, yeah, you're planning for the next year or you're also doing extra gigs to make extra money, teaching private lessons. You may even have a family that you're taking care of and that's its mm. own job in itself. So it's like, oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, the emotional exhaustion, it, it's so simple. Yeah. Becoming like emotionally overwhelmed, uh, yeah. basically. And I guess finding that balance where you do care about your students and you also care about yourself, um, mm -hmm. and taking care For of sure. your own well-being and your own mental and physical health. I, uh, recently, so observed... you don't take it out on your students. Cause if you don't, yes, take, exactly. if you don't heal your own wounds, you will bleed on people who didn't cut you. So yeah. You need yeah, to no, make that's sure actually just like when, yeah, I had a violin teacher tell me once before that I should quit violin. And then, um, and that I was like horrible. I'd never make it anywhere. And they're like, yeah, you should quit. It was the day before I had a really big concert, my first time playing a full concerto. Oh, and then, wonderful. 
I think it was like maybe nine months or so, 10 months later, where they apologized for it out of the blue. And were like, you know, I was just having a really rough time and I'm changing my teaching strategies now. And I was like, okay, that doesn't undo all the trauma that's involved with that, but okay. Um, and I appreciated yeah. the change. And and that person, like they, they did change. Um, but yeah, no, anyway, what I was saying is that, yeah, somewhere I observed uh, recently, I did a little interview with this teacher because I'm hoping to student teach with them. And like, he just has incredible energy when he teaches. And I asked him like, man, how do you keep up your teacher energy? I mean, like right now I have what we talked about, like my PTSD brain where I'm just very fatigued and hard to like to concentrate sometimes, but I was just so impressed by him. And he's like, well, I always go to bed early and he has a family too. He's like, I always go to bed early and I wake up around like 4.30 and he's like, I always work out in the morning. And these are certain things I eat that give me energy. Like he kind of, he took years to figure out himself and figure out how do I take care of my needs so I can be this really great teacher for my students. And I think that sometimes we approach it backwards. We're like, I need to be a really great teacher. Screw me. I don't need to eat. I don't need to sleep. And then that's where then you're taking on your students in this horrible cycle. But we need to be taught, like, figure out what works for you first, what you need to do so you can be your best version of yeah. a good teacher. That's um, very true. Yeah. Oh, I get so like sure. into this. No, <laughs> I, I think we have a really interesting dynamic because I was exclusively a performance major. So you have the, the, the training of what it's like to be an educator. I have a lot of compassion for educators. They are underpaid. They are overworked. I am disturbed by how often it is taken out on students. And I think that college professors are in a unique position where the fact that because their students are adults, they feel like they have more freedom to be emotionally abusive because they're not dealing with children. There's almost this, this illusion of equality between your student, but you're not equal, you know, and, and that's, mm -hmm. that's really, really hard. And I wish that I could make these blanket statements. I know it's not a perfect world to say like, you shouldn't be teaching if X, Y, and Z, because people can't always afford to quit. Um, I do feel like there were professors who potentially either needed to take a sabbatical or retire because they had gotten to a place where they'd been doing this for so long. And with every, it felt like with every new class, their disdain for the students grew and grew and grew into this like level of disgust, this assumption that if you think that every generation is getting lazier and lazier, then to, in my opinion, that is a, is a problem with you as a teacher. You need to take a step back. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think people are lazy. I really don't. I really think very few people are genuinely lazy. They just have problems that they don't necessarily know how to articulate, or they're too embarrassed to articulate to you. Um, if your anger issues are getting in the way of being able to teach, you need to take a step back. And frankly, I do believe that if you're a music teacher, you should be in therapy. I, I think you have to. You're taking on a lot of really intense emotions. Yeah, like a therapist should be in therapy. Music teacher should also be. In exactly, therapy. exactly. I feel like I feel like if you're an educator, you should be in therapy. Although I know that I can't make these blanket statements with the salary that teachers are getting, with the schedule that they work, and in the country that we live in. And that is what's depressing. Is mm -hmm. you know, I almost feel like music schools should provide therapy for their professors and their students. I used to say that all the time. I'm like, we all yeah. should be, if, if we're in the music program, we should be required to at least have like a monthly check-in. That makes sense. Yeah, something I think really contributes to this unsupportive environment is the fact that the classical music community is really insulated. We know this, um, but what's hard is that you spend 95% of your time as a classical musician performing for your critics. You're performing for your colleagues 
who are studying the same things as you or your teachers whose job it is to correct you. The frustrating thing about working in a subjective field that also is very traditional is that it demands excellence when there is no such thing as perfection. So if there is no such thing as perfection, but there are a lot of standards and everyone wants to pretend that these standards are so objective and they're not, you know, teachers like secretly disagree. And then if you tell one professor like, oh, well, this professor told me to do something different. They're like, mm, you misunderstood that, you know, oh, like yeah. they want to pretend that like there is no disagreement anywhere. But the problem is when the standards are so high and there's no such thing as perfect, there's no ceiling. So you can always do better which means that there's always critique that you can be given and you can never ever satisfy anyone. Um, and so particularly when you spend most of your time in an environment where their job is to critique you and, and they don't have time or make it a priority to build you up, how does that change you? There's this dichotomy of be vulnerable, move us, you know, make us feel something. And also have a thicker skin. You're too sensitive. You know, I would cry in coachings all the time. And then I would just start apologizing and be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just need a thicker skin. When I got the thicker skin, that's when I burned out faster because I could not emotionally connect with what I was doing anymore. Mm -hmm. We have to remember that in the professional world, the average audience member is not a professional. And why is it that audiences are not returning to the classical music world more than once often? Well, maybe it's because they can't connect with us um, because yeah. we are we are tailoring all of our standards, not to what moves an audience, what what makes music about saving lives and changing people. And instead, we make it about impressing people who pretend that they're all on the same page, but secretly aren't. I believe in high standards. I believe in excellence and I believe in striving to get better and better. But we have to have a, a reality of like, what is our priority here? And our priority should always be to move somebody like we were moved in the way that made us want to pursue this in the first place. Music heals people. And if we can't do that anymore, then I don't think we have a place on stage. You have to earn that audience. Um, and so that means that as a professor, you have to respect your students enough to not damage that part of them because you're not gonna spend your entire life playing for other professionals. And if we are, then we're in trouble as an industry. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, the interesting thing that you brought up reminded me. It's like, I would get compared a lot uh, to my sibling that is in medical school mm -hmm. to become a doctor. It's like, oh, he's going to like, he's in medical school. He's gonna be going to residency. This is a big deal working nights in hospitals. He has it harder than you. And I'm like, I go to school. Mm -hmm every single day and I'm told about how terrible I am as a musician and a person every single day and it's like that's what people don't realize it's not fun and games going to music school it's like yeah we make music together yay now I go home and la la. like my god you are constantly told that you're never going to be good enough everything you do is wrong you're rarely given compliments so at least in music school like I've Oh, when yeah, I do hear sure. a compliment from my teacher, I'm like, are you okay? Because I never hear that. And I'm always so careful with my students where I'm learning the education side. I'm like, wow, compliments are helpful not only to boost someone's confidence, reduce burnout and make them love music still, but also they need to know that the stuff that they're doing that is good and well and right now, they need to know that they're doing that well, keep sure. doing that. Compliments are yeah. just as important as critiques. And absolutely. Compliments like, are also a learning experience. They're not a little bonus uh -huh. that you sprinkle on top when you have time. One thing I wanted to ask you before we get into specific questions, tips and tricks, and kind of 
slightly more encouraging aspects of this podcast is, you know, for you, it, it is becoming much more, I don't want to say trendy, but it is becoming much more common to teach trauma-informed teaching. That is becoming something that is considered mandatory. So what does it feel like for you as somebody who has been traumatized by the environment where you are supposed to learn to be learning trauma-informed teaching when that when those methods are not being applied to you by the people whose job it is to teach you? What does that do? Because I imagine that would make you really bitter and that might be really triggering. Yes, definitely. Especially because right now I am taking a class on trauma-informed teaching by a professor that has, I'm not calling them out. So I'm by a professor that has made comments about being turned on by high school girls and crop tops while they teach. So hearing that, and especially based after what I went through, the ambulance is furious too. They're just going their siren. <laughs> um, <laughs> the ambulance has good timing today. It's like really <laughs> emphasizing things. Exactly. Um, you know, okay, okay. The good thing is that talking about trauma from teaching gives me hope. When I did a research project a year ago, while I was actively being abused on trauma-informed teaching, I learned a lot about myself. Um, I cried a lot during that research project because I was learning about basically what I was going through and how it was going to affect me. And sure enough, it affected me just as I had researched. Um, but I was very happy. I felt like the only thing I could do at the time because I was silenced was that I could give that presentation to our class and that it would help them become better teachers. And it actually kind of inspired uh, the teacher that teaches that trauma-informed uh, teaching class right now to do that. And he created this curriculum and he put the stuff together. And um, it's kind of cool. I feel like I'm like side TAing the class because I, I've read The Body Keeps the Score and I'm reading Grit currently, which yeah. he's talked about both. So um, I've popped in and like said a few things, um, which right now it's been really hard for me to participate in class because I don't feel very right. safe there. So I usually don't even raise my hand or do anything anymore. And that's been one where I've, I've spoken some stuff. Yeah. Um, so it gives me hope. I'm glad that we're finally talking about this stuff because we've created this culture where we don't do trauma-informed teaching. So the fact that we're starting to teach it, it's a start. It's a very slow start. I wish we could just, well, this is going to sound harsh. I wish we could just have morals and be good people and treat students with respect, like how we said yeah. we expect students to treat teachers with respect. Um, but it also makes me very angry because I know I'd be in a very different place right now if I had trauma-informed teaching and care for me while I was going through the stuff I was going through last year. Um, and yeah, I guess I, I do feel pretty alone about it. And in some ways, I feel like with my experiences, I know how to be a good person and a good teacher, most importantly. It, makes me angry and gives me anxiety feeling like I am the only one that can give trauma-informed teaching the right way because I know how to do it based on what I've experienced with I mean and everybody's trauma is different when you're teaching different kids um, but when you have actual experience with it I wish that we would listen to those people and be like okay what way do you think sure. we should teach and instead it's like well I think this is the right way because this person that is higher up says to do it this way and they have like no idea what they're talking about so yeah. it's given me a, quite a bit of stress I'll be honest when I am thinking about teaching and I'm like gosh, I'm going to have like all these pressures to do stuff particular ways that might not even be helpful to my students. I wish we would listen to the people who have experience with this stuff instead of listening to the ones that have more power. Um, but we, they oftentimes don't have a voice. They're either, you know, pushed out 
of yeah. that industry to the point where you can't make a difference. And I imagine there must be a huge dichotomy between the, okay, maybe my experience can change things for the better. And then also seeing some of those positive changes starting to take place and thinking like, what about me? Why did it have to be me? Do you think that maybe there's too much emphasis on trauma-informed teaching for children, but then when it comes to adult students, we're just like, mm, whatever. Yeah, like you were saying, like we assume, okay, you're 18, you're an adult now, so you know everything. In reality, like the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. There's a lot of things in the body that aren't fully developed that it kind of bothers me that we're considered adults at 18. And, and it's like people forget that there's a power dynamic there. There's a huge power dynamic. That person with the more power can so easily manipulate and threaten you and quite literally destroy you. And so when you're operating on the idea that, oh, you're an adult, oh, we're the same. Oh, I just have a little bit more knowledge than you because I go by the title Dr. Blank. No, um, it's not about like adult child. It's about teacher student where mm -hmm. this trauma informed teaching and respect like has to come from. So I think, yeah, that is the most frustrating thing is that there's this expectation like, yeah, you're an adult now, like you should know how to do all these things. And I'm waiting for the day where people are like set in more laws and rules where there's stuff like, I don't even know. I can't even say when you're 25, then like everything's fine. Cause like, no. even when that prefrontal cortex is fully developed, there's, there's just so much in like age differences and power differences. Yeah. And yeah. one day there's going to be more research on it and people are going to look back at this day and age and be like, oh my God, there was so much wrong there. They opened the door for yeah. so much abuse and damage. And I'm hoping one day that they do look back at this era of our lives and are like, what is wrong with you people? Why did you do this to them? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think yeah. it also goes back to that, like, don't have disdain for your students is that there's this idea that like, I think teachers think, professors think that you can't be trauma informed and also have high quality education. I'm sure most of them wouldn't say it in so many words, but there's this idea of like, oh, if I'm trauma informed, I'm handling everybody with kid gloves. Anytime you try to put a set of rules in place, they're like, you're interfering with my method. Demanding excellence and caring for the well being of your student emotionally are not mutually exclusive. What it is, is harder work. So if you're not willing to put in the work, <laughs> Redacted. You know it's true though. You still... Do I need to cut that out though? I had to. Do that. Oh yeah, no, that'll be funny. Pixar. As you were talking though, I was like, literally like visualizing him standing in front of the classroom, in front of my desk, and pointing at me, saying, "It's this court." That's what he would do to me. It was crazy, and I was terrified. Recognize when you need to retire. Did he, and you know who I'm talking about, did he ever say around to you, like if people asked for accommodations on an assignment or like help with doing something, or if they had to do a particular thing and he would say like, oh, like, no, you don't have to do that. Or if you don't like it the way it is, you could always go work at McDonald's. Like they need people to make fries there. <laughs> yes. Oh my I, God. And it seemed funny. Yeah. Like it seemed funny. And now I'm like, hold on, why are we shading that job why are we treating them as lower than us and why aren't you accommodating for your students that are asking and, and on a syllabus it's communication is key blah blah blah, blah. so well, that professor he kind of had dad humor he was he was pretty well liked i think when i was in school i think he was definitely very fatigued by the time that you had him and so i think his his he definitely had a temper but i didn't know a single redacted professor who didn't have a huge temper um, but you know, a lot of people liked him. He had, I will say he had really good taste in music. People were very affectionate towards him because it was kind of like, oh, he's a little bit weird. He's quirky. Um, 
But again, his, his temper was a problem in the classroom, but it didn't stand out compared to anyone else. Something that I really struggled with is that, you know, I had these learning differences and I talked a little last episode about how we teach one particular way. And if you don't get it, you can leave. And that's absolutely where the McDonald's line would come in. Um, but when I would, I learned very early on, I can't go to this person for help. I can, I have to actually sometimes put it on a show of going to this person for help, because if I'm not seen taking advantage of the help offering, I'm going to be told I didn't try hard enough. But I also know that's going to be a waste of my time because I'm not going to learn in a way that's helpful to me. So when I would find my own tips and tricks, I realized that my anxiety level would make um, remembering key signatures really hard. I have a visual processing disorder. It's really, really hard to this day for me to identify a key signature just looking. So before I started anything, I would write out the circle of fifths on my exam. Um, I, and I got to take my exam in a private room and everything, and I had extra time. And that was a way of calming me down. But it also meant that I could just look at it. And, and go like, I don't have to sit here and try to remember and try to clarify things when my brain is panicking. And I would try to erase it because when I left it on the paper, he in all capital letters wrote crutch. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm using a crutch, it's because I have an injury. So I'm going to use that crutch mm. because my brain doesn't work the way that yours does. I need that crutch. Um, Ooh, yeah. Like you, you, you don't see a person with a broken angle at and like kick the crutch out from under them and go, that's a crutch. Why are you using that? No, I'm, it's a tool. It is a tool and it's a tool that I need. And until you find a better way to teach me, that's what I'm going to need. And it's hard because I did have a lot of respect for him, um, that it was kind of heartbreaking, like to, to have ways that I could see that he could have been better, um, you know, and then other ways where I'm like, some of these things make me uneasy. Yeah. It's yeah. like same way for me. Like I feel like I had a lot of respect for him because I love music theory and I knew that he knew yeah. a lot about music theory. You're a really great teacher. You're must be a great person. And then when you see these things that are very, like you say, uneasy, probably he could have gotten in trouble for that McDonald's thing. I have a feeling if somebody, the wrong person heard that and Maybe. took that, you could probably like, he could have had like a talking. I'm not saying like that. He could, but he also makes but... sex jokes in class and never got in trouble with that. Yeah. yeah. So like, you know, he made jokes about people hooking up with each other. Uh, he made, he, when I was first dating my, my now husband, cause he was at the same school as me, he like walked me to my classroom one day when I was a freshman. So I was, I, I was a 19 year old and, um, and he made a, a joke about like, oh, is he your little dog? Is he your little slave? Like, like not even just like tame sex jokes, like kind of hardcore sex jokes. And I was just like, I, I, and again, as a 19 year old being naive, I was like, I guess we're all adults. I guess this is just how mm -hmm. adults talk to each other, which I know you relate to a ton too. So to me, it's like, well, if that was okay, how is a, a, a McDonald's joke is going to seem like way less. Yeah. And that's where it goes back to that power dynamic where it's like, you're uncomfortable, you know, it's wrong, but you're scared to rock the boat, especially when you see their temper them grabbing your desk and going like this in your face, you're going to be afraid to even bring up something like that. I'm so. going to dissociate. If, if a man yells yeah. in the room where I am, which happened in every class I had, I can no longer pay attention to what you're saying. I'm, I'm sitting there like I can be trying so hard, but I am floating away from my body the second you raise your voice. Yeah. And I know I I'm not unique in that. If, if I didn't know the stories of what had happened to you, I would be tempted to be a lot more delicate. But the second that I learned, when I learned how people responded to your story, I have no tolerance for that.
I just don't, I don't. Mm -hmm. So like any respect that I did have or any sort of benefit of a doubt that gets thrown away the second that I see how people respond to survivors. I have to go back to a place of like, calm. <laughs> regroup, ground yourself. Yeah. So to wrap up this episode, we had some people reach out to us with questions about burnout that they want us to talk about on the podcast. So we're going to go through a couple of those. We got four. Uh, the very first one asked thoughts on emotional and physical burnout, feeling too tired to go on and too tired to care. Um, to me, that sounds like feeling unsupported, which kind of ties back into finding a supportive environment, which is not always easy, right? The fact that I still had to come back to the school where I don't have support. Um, I was pretty much stuck here. I, I, there wasn't an easy way to get out. So I'm not saying like, yeah, pack up your bags and go somewhere else because it's not that simple. I think just diagnosing though that that's the problem can help you figure out how to deal with your burnout. I think a big thing for me is thinking about what sparked your passion in music. It's something that we don't talk about a lot, but I'm glad we talked about in the first podcast episode was what was your moment? Uh, remembering yeah. your moment, uh, listening to music, for fun, if you can, yes. um, I think is very important. Um, and then there's kind of a time and a place where grit helps. I wasn't sure really to bring this up or not, because I think to some degree, it's helpful to have grit to yeah. get through some stuff in some ways. Should we have to have grit in this way with burnout? No. I think that's kind of a complex thing to bring up. I agree. When I was for most of my degree, my screenshot on my phone, it just said, nobody cares, work harder. Mm -hmm. And I used to say that I was fueling myself with the chip on my shoulder. That, that only lasts you for so long. That's a very toxic fuel to burn. So while I absolutely am grateful to the grit that I had and to the way that I could just like white knuckle my way through it, because that was the only way I would have survived. I think you have to think about harm reduction. If that is the only thing that you've got, then it's okay to lean on it. But try mm -hmm. to incorporate healthier coping mechanisms as you can. You know, try to find those those pockets of strength, those life-giving things to make sure that you are supplementing your grit with something that is a healthier fuel. Having a regularly scheduled day for yourself. Um, that part about, I mean, emotional and physical burnout and just the feeling too tired to go on or care. It sounds like you're like dragging yourself through life every day with like a chain and like a heavy ball, like attached to it. And you're like trying to make it through. Um, one thing that I did for myself was like Sundays were my day off. Um, so Sundays, I mean, I don't want to say they were like my day off. I did nothing. I laid in bed, stared at the ceiling. No. Um, but it would just be a time where I didn't have particular places to be. It was just a day for me. Um, last year, what I did is that I would go to church on Sunday and I would try to just relax and enjoy church. And I would get outside, I think was the most important thing because I had to take the train for that. So I was getting outdoors and then I come back to my place. I do some laundry. I'd clean. It wasn't a day where I had to practice, but it was like, okay, I'm still being productive. I'm still getting things done. But it's a day where I don't have like Emily must be here at 12 o'clock. Emily must now be here at three o'clock. Uh, I think having yeah. a day like that to yourself is very helpful. While I was going through some stuff I was going through, my stomach was being affected as a result of it. And I would go like very long time without being able to use the bathroom. 
So what my doctor wanted me to do was a colon cleanse. And she's like, okay, well, in order to do this colon cleanse, like you need a whole day to yourself. So what's the day of the week that you have all to yourself? And that's where I was like, a day of the week I have all to myself. Like, oh, wow. And I'm like, I should have that. And they're like, yes, you should always make sure you have that. And that kind of is what became my Sunday then. And that was my thing was um, Sunday. It's interesting because she just expected me to have that day. She's like, what's the day that you don't have anything? I'm like, what? <laughs> like, no, cause there's always like, true. you know, something to get done. And I, I would also say like, we need to reframe how we think about productivity. There's a lot of pressure to be productive. I know something that a lot of people do is a lot of my classmates had church jobs. I mean, that's one of the easiest jobs to get most in demand, most consistently paying. I mean, it's not going to support anyone, but almost everyone I knew had one. I never did. Um, partly because I was dealing with these, you know, really mysterious at the time health issues. Sundays were my day to be alone. Uh, Joe, my my husband, he had a church job, so I really wouldn't see him on Sundays. Um, And so I was usually alone on the weekends. Um, When I had more energy, I would usually go um, to thrift stores in the afternoon. I would sleep in and then I would get ready and I would go to thrift stores and walk around like vintage shops and things. And I would take myself out to dinner and I would take myself out to like nice dinner, um, you know, too. I, I'd find places that were cute and a good environment and just really got comfortable with, and I'm introverted. So again, I'm going to get my energy from being alone, but like people watching and being alone with my thoughts and like being kind to myself as my symptoms progressed, going out as a form of recharging became something that I could do less frequently. But what I really try not to do is label rotting in bed days as unproductive because recovery is productive. If you are at a place where your body is telling you that you can't do anything, there is a reason. And your body is always doing work. It's doing work when you are sleeping. It is doing work when you are eating, when you are resting, when you're using the bathroom, like all of that thing is like, those are necessary functions. And the more you shame yourself and say, I did nothing today. Well, rest is doing something. But the worse you're going to, the more time you're going to need to recover if you're not willing to take that time because you feel like I should be practicing right now. Your brain is soaking things in. You know, I feel like we've all had that time where we feel like I just can't get this memorized or I can't get this section learned. And then we get so frustrated that we just leave it alone for a while and come back to it later. And then suddenly it's easy. It's because you Mm -hmm. gave your brain a break. It just needs time to process those patterns. I understand that time is a commodity that we do not have enough of in school, but you will pay for it if you don't force yourself to take it. Even if that means I got to skip a class, I can't do all of the assignments. I can't take this extra job. I can't volunteer for this thing. It's, it's okay. It is okay because the bare minimum is somebody else's maximum. So resting is productive. Practice does not always look like putting your nose to the grindstone. There are lots of ways to be productive and all of those are necessary for your your body to function properly. Yeah. Somebody asked advice for when a private teacher is contributing to burnout. Um, I have to bring this up because at the very beginning of a pandemic, um, something that we did was uh, online studio classes. And it was technically before I was a part of the studio, but I was about to enter college and then be a part of the studio. So I was let in on them and they were really cool. Like we got people from all around the world then um, that were her previous students to like give these master classes, And I was just like jotting down notes, it was really cool. And 
we do little Q and A's at the end. And one of the master teachers asked like to all of the students. So how are all you guys doing like right now during this pandemic? Like, do you still have the motivation to practice? How, are you okay with practicing? Are you taking a break? Like, how's that going for you guys? And before any student could respond, my teacher unmuted herself. And she was like, oh, my students always practice. They're fine. None of them have any problems. And seeing everybody's faces, everybody was just like, okay, that was not what was That's happening at all. That's and also, that's shaming everybody who has those feelings. Yeah. Um, so I feel like it's it's kind of a thing with your private teacher where it's like, what what can you take? What is going to serve you? Can you take qualities like that? Or do you need a teacher that can adjust their teaching to your needs? Like, I feel like for me, I'm a different teacher for every single one of my students. Yeah, I am a completely different personality and everything. That's why it's gonna be so interesting for me in the future when I do like recitals for all my students all together, because I'm like, okay, which version of myself today? Because I'm gonna have all my yeah. students in the same room. But teachers should be able to tailor their teaching style to you. Absolutely. Um, and it, I guess it's kind of up to you, like, you know, when it's like, okay, I think I just have to kind of like ride this out. Like there's more pros than cons. Um, can you talk to your teacher about that? Or is that an unsafe thing to do? Or are you like, okay, this teacher is not serving me. Am I even getting better? Is it even worth getting better to the degree that I am right now? If I'm also yeah. dealing with this horrific burnout and deciding what's the best for you, because there really is no right decision. Yeah. Um, it's not sustainable for everybody. And, yeah. yeah. Again, if your teacher is not a right fit, nothing works. Um, I would mm -hmm. say, I know it's really, really hard to try and switch teachers within the same program without offending people. Um, yeah. So I would say, try really hard to know ahead of time that you're studying with somebody who's a good fit. And if you don't get into the studio where you think it's going to be a good fit, you may really need to reconsider what school you're going to. That being said, if the best sol solution for you is to push to switch studio teachers, do it. You know, it is more important that you have somebody who pours into you than you offend somebody else's ego. I know that can be controversial, but to me, it's like, that is the one thing that like you cannot compromise on. And again, I know yeah, that's um, easier said than done, but yeah. Yeah. When you do switch a studio teacher like that, really the only one that might be offended is going to be that specific teacher. And if so, does that yeah. already matter if they no. were already, you already didn't have a great relationship or connection with them? But think about yeah. like your colleagues. Like if I found out one of the violinists at school switched studio teachers, am I going to be like, oof, that's not good? No. I don't know. Like, I oh, saw okay. that. I, I definitely saw that. Unfortunately, I think there are always going to be like that one teacher who is kind of a catch-all for somebody who the other professors don't want. Um and um and unfortunately this one teacher just seemed like he had his foot out the door already like he just he wanted to retire he didn't want to be there um and he didn't really invest in 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 his students and i know that my like a lot of the professors when when a student would approach them about can i take a trial lesson with you can i see if you're a better fit they would be afraid to try another mm -hmm. student because they're like i don't want to offend my professional colleague there were some who did it. My teacher would do it. My teacher adopted quite a few students, um, but but it did come at a cost. Um, so you just have to be prepared for, for people to have that reaction. But again, I would say if your teacher is contributing to that, you need to find a new teacher. I, I know that's easier said than done, 
but it's not worth it. It is not worth it because even if you are improving, that is not sustainable improvement. It will catch up to you. Yeah. I don't know that we've even talked about this, but did you know that was my freshman, the end of my freshman year, I did try to change one of my teachers. No, I, I don't think know. we ever talked about, it. I tried, I, I was aware that it was a scary thing to do. And I kind of like carefully reached out through people about, is this even possible? Cause I didn't want to just go straight to the teacher and be like, I want to do this. Yeah. Cause I didn't even know how it worked. And then the one that I was hoping to take lessons with instead was petrified because she was friends mm -hmm. with that teacher. And she was yeah. like, honestly, I would love to work with you. I think you're such a hard worker and I just love how you play violin, but I'm scared. And now I'm just sitting back here and I'm like, God, is that really the dynamic that we have? Like, I hope that's just like a yeah. college sort of thing. And that like other private teachers aren't that way, but I, I think it's better know. outside of outside of school. And that is the thing. Yeah. If they're talking about a private teacher, find a new private teacher. If they're talking about a studio teacher in college and you absolutely can't switch, just know that it's not forever. It is not forever. And mm -hmm. once you're out, there is a lot more flexibility to find somebody who's a good fit. You don't know if you'll stay in the same geographic area. You don't know what your job will be. Um, but definitely as many trial lessons as you can get, figure out who's a good fit. Yeah. Yeah. And then somebody asked, how do you ground and force yourself to recover from burnout? Um, kind of like what I mentioned about having already scheduled breaks. So you don't want to be working seven days a week, not giving yourself a break, like always have that one day for yourself for sure. that will at least prolong until burnout really does start to hit you. Um, learning when you need breaks before you physically start to show it, um, yes. or even emotionally or mentally start to show it when you start having breakdowns, like learning when you need them and planning those breaks prior to when those breakdowns do happen. Um, I think the most important thing is not to rush recovery. I was thinking about it first of explaining this as like, oh, it's like a broken bone. Like you don't want to rush recovery of a broken bone because it won't be fully healed. But I think this would be better tied to an overuse injury because I've experienced mm. that myself. And it's like, you think you're better. You think you've rested enough. You think you've done all the things, physical therapy, massages, a break, whatever. And you're like, okay, like it feels fine now. It's only been a few days, but it feels fine. So I'm going to jump right back into it. And then the injury comes right back and you are yeah. not ready for it. And that's something that can happen with burnout if you don't learn how how long and how exactly you need to recover is that then it could just come right back. And then you're like, yeah. oh my God, like this burnout is never going to go away. And it feels like this impending sense of doom that you're never going yeah. to be okay and not be in this burnout place, figuring out the, uh, recovery, how long and what you need to do and not rushing yeah. it, I think is my thing. Yeah. It, it's almost like taking antidepressants, like people get assigned them and then they say, mm -hmm. I'm feeling better. Let me stop taking my meds. And then it gets bad again. Like your self-care is not a quick fix. It is an ongoing habit that you must build into your lifestyle. I know a lot of professors will say like about like skipping class. Okay, well, that's your money down the drain. You know, that was he who shall not be named um, line about like, okay, you're wasting your, this is how much it costs every time you skip a class. Look, be very in tune with your body. Your body is part of your instrument. If you're a singer, especially so, but no matter what, your body is part of your instrument. You need to be in touch with it. I'm somebody who disassociates strongly from my own body. I do not feel connected to it at all. And I am paying the price for it now by having to go back and retrain myself how to listen. So sometimes that's going to mean stepping away. If you are feeling sick, if you are having a gut reaction, if you are getting sick before a class, if you're having panic attacks, you know, sometimes you're going to need to, I would say that the occasional skipped class is medicinal. 
and required. I would say that very few people do everything, are able to do everything, have perfect attendance and get every assignment done and get straight A's. Um, you know, sometimes that's just not the reality. Um, and you need to build your self-care into a lifestyle. And I will also say like, find life-giving moments. What is energizing to you? What feeds your soul? Uh, I had no time for hobbies when I was in school. Um, you know, that's something that I've only recently discovered since graduation, um, since the pandemic, really, you know, and, and I like started building dollhouses from scratch. When I was in school, the things that were really life giving to me is I, I created a job for myself by inserting myself into the role of hair and makeup for the opera, um, which is juniors and seniors beforehand, people were sort of relying on themselves. And I was like, that's stupid. Let me do it. Obviously, I couldn't style every single person, but I designed quick changes. I built teams. Um, we 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 literally choreographed quick changes, um, you know, which was so exciting to be like, let me get this down to 90 seconds. OK, let me get it down to, to 60 seconds. Um, let me, you know, change somebody's gender in 30 seconds, which is quite an opera trope. I can find that even if I don't like the show I'm in, I will never not love the process of being in a show. Um, and those tech week experiences of just like helping create the storyline and, you know, and I would sit down with my face charts of everybody and like map out how I wanted to style their character. And I turned that into a role that I did exclusively for five years. Um, you know, that was life giving for some people that's going to be seeing performances. Um, a big one for me was piano. Piano is the little thing that I have that is just for me. I absolutely burnt myself out on piano, taking piano classes in college, because, you know, my teacher was somebody who recognized when I was younger that I needed it to be for me and let me focus on arranging and composing, because that's what didn't take as much effort for me. She let me play my own compositions and recitals. Uh, she just realized that it wasn't smart to push me there because I was being pushed from every other direction. But when I was in college, there was a very narrow guideline list of things that I needed to check off to be able to pass my classes. So it got to the point where I dreaded piano. I'm not as good at piano as the amount of years of training that I have had should make me, but I have so much respect for piano. I love pianos. I love, you know, you were talking about how you love like the feeling, the vibrations and like wondering what that felt like when you were interested in violin. I understand music through a piano. I see it linearly if that's a word. Uh, when I'm sight singing, I, I'm moving my fingers. Um, uh, that helps me marginally. It helps me go from an anxious mess to a slightly less anxious mess. But once I finished my requirement, I really healed my relationship with piano and realized that like, this is my little thing that is still music, but it gives me life. It's for nobody. Nobody judges it. Nobody grades it. And so maybe that's playing music that isn't classical. Maybe that's listening to music that isn't classical. Maybe it's research. Like some people love deep diving into a certain topic. You have to build those in, in, in into your life and make sure that you can carve out a niche for yourself where you get to do those things. Yeah, you actually just kind of jumped into uh, what was going to be my answer to the next question, which is how to deal with burnout during a busy performance season. Mm -hmm. And that's where I immediately was like, we'll do other things than work or practice. Um, mm -hmm. For me, like, I think my things that aren't practice that like get me away from that. So I have a little bit of a break are also related to music in some ways, just like you were saying. So for me, that's social media. I like managing my social media page. I guess I like yeah. 
I like the fakeness of it and romanticizing everything and making everything like look so happy and good. I don't it's know. A good I feel coping like mechanism. It truly is. And I love looking at Brooklyn and Bailey, the twins, their uh, Instagram, because Bailey does a wonderful job at just like bringing out so much positive on her page and talking about all these like yeah. happy holiday seasonal things like they're getting their new place they're working on their businesses and I love that and I try to mimic that and show these happy things on my page as well and I like yeah. to bring awareness to the stuff that people try to cover and hide and not that I want everything to be silenced and all like fake but to some degree I do like yeah. to use that as my place where it's it's cool it's like a project like I'm putting out this material for people and it's also like my own diary log of like all these videos and pictures and um yeah. memories and stuff so it's yeah I think um during a performance season you're right like you do have to practice um if you're like heavily involved in performances maybe you're not doing so much practicing as you are performing because you already know the music by that point so it's mostly taking care of yourself during the performance yeah era. All right. Thank you for listening. If you have any feedback, you can reach us at dissonantdialogues at gmail.com. Uh, you can reach out to us over Instagram DM, or you can even leave us a voicemail at 872-216-9032 with feedback. Uh, if you'd like to be a guest, if you have guest ideas, topic ideas, questions, a personal story with being a musician, anything that we've talked about today that you'd like us just to talk about that maybe we haven't even talked about, leave a voicemail, let us know. Uh, give us a follow on Instagram and TikTok. We are Dissonant Dialogues on both of those platforms. And we're looking forward to our next episode. Take care of yourselves and we'll see you next time. Because he was a teacher of music. And of course, there's an ambulance coming when I'm talking about like the most important thing, like sensitive topic right now. Sent from my iPhone. That's what I was thinking about. <laughs> Back in my day. This is getting me so excited. I'm like, okay. Oh, the frontal lobe is showing up. Okay. You look I will be very tactful and incredibly sensitive with how I edit that. But the implication of shade will be there. Shostakovich. <laughs> Shostakovich is like listening to like heavy metal like of those guys like screaming like I feel like that's what's co-produced to the classical world and it's just like yeah it keeps you going <laughs>